Okay, Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Father, I do pray that you would open our eyes to your gospel, to your broad purposes, Lord, that you have been faithful to for thousands of years. Um, Lord, I I pray that this uh, word tonight would fill us with an understanding of the good news that that has come to us and the good news that you've entrusted us uh, to share in uh, in our lives, to share in this city. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd fill us with the gospel uh, and it would it would fill us with assurance for ourselves but also, Lord, it would fill us with zeal uh, to go forth and proclaim this amazing story, this amazing truth of Jesus, the Messiah. Lord, capture our hearts tonight uh, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so chapter 7 really starts in the middle of a thought, okay? And um, so these chapter markers get, get kind of uh, obnoxious in this section, um, really, this whole section can boil down to a thought that is put into a very dense statement in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin, increase, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is explaining how that's possible. And so in chapter 6, he talks about our, our co-crucifixion, our co-burial with Jesus in baptism, into Christ, out of Adam and into Christ. The death of the old humanity and life in the new resurrection humanity. So we talked about that a lot, how that we've gone from one realm to another. That's why sin doesn't have dominion over us anymore. It can't reign in, uh, over us anymore because we're not under its authority. And so um, the idea there then is picked up in chapter 7. He says, or don't you know, brothers, because I'm speaking to you who have the law. And that's a very important point here. Chapter 7 is dealing with the question of the law. All right. So we've come out of the old humanity into the new humanity. But what about this thing called the law? This thing that really set us apart as the people of God and seems to be what God really wants out of humanity, right? I mean, the law is a pretty good thing. It paints a pretty good picture. Don't we see? So how, how then, where does the law fit in all this? And that's what Paul's going to explain in chapter 7. And the law, I think... We need to remember, and it's very important, the law here is the Mosaic Covenant. It's the Old Testament law. It's, it's Torah, okay? It's not just uh, any general moral code, right? Just law in general or legislation. Um, we're talking about specifically the covenant, co- the, the law given under the covenant between God and his people at Sinai. Um, and that's important because the way Paul is explaining it is really in the shape of 
the giving of the old covenant, the, 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 the old exodus. He's explaining that a new exodus has happened, which was prophesied, by the way, Romans 1, 2. It was prophesied. It was, it was told beforehand in the scriptures by the prophets that when God comes back to establish a new covenant with his people, he's going to enact a new exodus. And so Paul is, is explaining the new exodus. All right, so deliverance from bondage. That's what the Exodus was all about. Going through the Red Sea through baptism. Now into, what's, what was the next thing? Into uh, a place where they were now given the law. Okay, so we're tracking with you, Paul. We see, yeah, deliverance. We see baptism as crossing the Red Sea. Now what about the law? Okay, so here we are right in the middle of that story. We're going to go on to the wilderness wanderings, which is the sufferings in this present age, right? That we get through them by the very presence of God, like a pillar of cloud by day, the very presence of God by his Holy Spirit and his people, leading his people, providing for his people, protecting his people. They, though they experience suffering, right? But on the way headed to the promised land, which is the renewal of all creation. Okay, so this whole, this whole narrative is the backbone and the backdrop of Romans 6, 7, and 8. And really, he goes from Adam to Moses to the law to, right, in 5, it's all, it's all about Adam. So he's telling the story of Israel, but the story of Israel is just a microcosm of the story of mankind, right? It's just dealing with a representative portion of mankind. And that's important, uh, as, we'll, as we'll see. Okay, so he's, he's describing the new exodus. Um, also, that Paul's uh, section here, that, that his summary of chapter 7, what he's getting at, does not end in 725. <laughs> it does not end at the end of chapter 7. Okay, the summary where he says, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It doesn't end there. That's not the hope of a Christian. That's not the normal life of a Christian. And we'll, we'll talk about that. So, but the big question here always is, who is the I? When he gets toward the end of chapter 7, the second half of chapter 7, who is the I? He's, he's speaking in first person. Is he talking about himself, Paul? Is this autobiographical? Is he talking about um, just a typical Christian? You know, I, as a, as a typical Christian, um, what I think, there's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of debate about this. But what's most convincing to me, in light of how much in Paul he is retelling the old story through the lens of Jesus, he's just doing that all the time. I think that, that who, what the I is, is Israel under the law. It's Israel under the law pre-Christ. That's the state of Israel. Right? And so he's saying, I, as a member of Israel, because listen, he's talking about right at the beginning of the chapter, and now we'll go, we'll walk through. Uh, so that's some context, and we'll, uh, we'll flesh that out. I am speaking to those who know the law. I am speaking to those who know the law. So, and he says a little later, um, 
in chapter 9, he identifies. He's like, I am one of you all, according to the flesh. Those who have the law. I am speaking to those who know the law. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So he takes an example. What are we talking about? We're talking about how we're no longer slaves to sin. And actually, we're no longer under the law. So how, how can that be? How, how are we... Is, there's, there seems to be a problem there. And Paul's going to address... First of all, how can we not, no longer be under the law? Second of all, what was wrong with the law? Why do we, why do we not need to be under it anymore? And so that's what, those are the questions he answers in these next two sections. So first of all, how is it that we can now no longer be under the law? He says, well... He died. And just like, let's take an example from the law, guys. You know how binding the covenant of marriage is? Well, guess what? When you die, it's no longer binding. It's done. It's annulled. And so you having died, we just spent a whole chapter talking about that. (laughs) You having died, you don't have to follow, you're, you're not under the law anymore. Okay. So how are we know why, why don't we have any more responsibility to the law? Because you've died. Okay? So that's the question that he answers by giving this illustration about marriage. He says the, the, the covenant of marriage is binding until somebody dies. Likewise, brother, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. Just like you've died to sin, you've also died to the law. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Now, this is interesting. If you, if you look at this really closely, it, it gets confusing. The, the, the analogy with marriage, he says, if you've died, or if, if, you're, if your spouse dies, if the husband dies, then the wife is free to marry whoever she wants. But then he says, but we're, we've the one, we're the ones who have died but we're also now free to marry whoever we want. So there's like, there's like two parts here. There's the part of us that has died, and that's, that's one part of the analogy. And then there's the part of us that's free to marry whoever we want. Did that confuse you when you went through it? Like how he was relating? How, the metaphor seems to break down until you understand that both things have happened. Like our old man has died, and our new man is raised to life. So there's really that we, we played both parts, right? We died. That was the old one. So now we're raised to life, and this is the new kind of person. So there's two people. We're both people in the, in the, in the metaphor, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Confusing. Yeah. So we're the spouse that has died, <laughs> But we're also the spouses that, that because the spouse has died, we're free to marry whoever we want. Okay. So you have died to the law through the body of sin so that you may belong to another. There's like two yous here. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Right? And every time we see fruit, that should just throw you back to uh, Genesis. Right? Be fruitful and multiply. The original vocation of mankind. The original task in the garden was to be fruitful and multiply. And that was actually reiterated in some form whenever God came to 
uh, renew the covenant with his people, right? With Noah, he said, be fruitful and multiply. With Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be fruitful, basically, and multiply and fill the earth. So you've been raised so that now you can be a human in the way that you were always meant to be a human, bearing fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. He's going to explain the dynamic of that a few verses later. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code, which is something he also reiterates in Galatians as well. The spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So we no longer relate to a written code. We relate to a living and active God. Okay? So, again, we're still really sort of on this, you've been brought out of this realm and put into this realm. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? So that's the other question. How can we be released from the law? Well, we've, been, we've died. What was, why did we need to be released from the law? Was it sinful? And then he's going to go on and basically um, testify in, in favor of Torah. He said, no, no, no. It's not sin. Sin is sin. Torah, basically, he says, was a magnifying glass for sin. Don't hate the magnifying glass. That was actually good. If it had not been sin, I would not have known sin. Or if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So it came to make the will of God explicit. And by corollary, it came to make the definition of sin explicit. Thou shalt not. (laughs) That is sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But it doesn't mean that, I mean, people coveted before the law. They just didn't know exactly what that was called or why it was sinful or, and, you know, and what the alternative was. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, and the language that he uses to describe sin is very uh, personified. Right? Did you notice this? Sin seizing an opportunity. This is the power of sin. And the power of sin is really the power of Satan. Right? This is this is a this is a personality at work. And it's not just it's not just a part of us. There there is a force at work. This is what it means to be under sin. Right? You're not just under some aspect, some dirty part of your body. <laughs> You're under this this personal power that exists in the world. This power, it says, is an opportunistic power, right? This is Satan in the garden. He saw an opportunity. When Satan came to tempt Jesus, Jesus, you know, blasted him out of the water with the word of God. And then it says Satan departed until an opportune time. Satan is an opportunist. Sin is an opportunist. Just like Satan saw an opportunity because he was cunning in the garden to deceive Eve, sin 
through this commandment, it sees an opportunity to, uh, to cause us to sin. When the, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. It's like when God said, don't eat of that tree, Satan goes, oh, away. Finally, we have a way to ruin something, of God, something that God loves. Right? Oh, I know why. I know how to do it. I'm going to get them to disobey. I'm going to tell them that if they don't do this, they're going to be missing out on all sorts of stuff. I'm going to tell them that they need this. I'm going to appeal to, their, to their, the desires of their flesh, and I'm going to get them to put those above the commandment of God. That's how I'll do it. So sin, it says, saw that, hey, now if they don't do this thing, God's going to destroy them. Well, I'm going to go make them do that thing. Because I can't destroy the people of God. But if I get them to bring destruction on themselves, that's just as good. Does that make sense? This is why it's so insidious. I love the story of Balaam and uh, King Balak. Right? Balak hires Balaam to curse the people of God. He says, they're the people of God. I can't curse them. And he tried three times. But what did he end up doing? He said, but here's how you can get the people of God to be cursed. If you get them to commit idolatry, if you get them to commit sexual morality, they'll bring a curse on themselves because their God says they're blessed until they disobey me, then they're cursed. All right? So the law, listen, the law isn't just do this. The law is if you don't do this, you are cursed. Or if you do this thing that's bad, there will be a curse on your life. So sin goes, yes, a way to curse the people of God. Does it make sense? For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I mean, what's, what's going to happen? And this, you know, this kind of hints at several other statements that have been like that. Like, until the law, sin is not counted where there is no law. He has said that in Romans. He also says that God passed over former sins. In Acts, it says that God had winked at sin. Where he hasn't brought his law to bear, God is patient. He forbears, right? He turns away from that. Right? So for a time between Adam and Moses, God was putting up with sin. Well, you saw what he did with Noah. He destroyed everything. But then he said, you know what? I'm not going to do that again. That's not the way we're going to deal with sin. If you guys have the big picture in your head, Romans 7 is incredible. All right? He's, t- he's telling the perennial story of the people of God. The tree that God said, don't eat of that tree. And Satan goes, whoa. Okay, here we go. I don't like them being all happy in this garden. How can we get him? How, how can we ruin this? Well, there's only one thing that God has said that they should do or else they're going to die. That's where we go. That's how sin works with the law to bring death. Sin loves the law because it contains the justice of God and the wrath of God as well on disobedience. 
The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Right? Think the very commandment, you may eat of this tree, including the tree of life, (laughs) but don't eat of this tree. If you do this, you will live. If you do this, you will die. The commandment said, I promise you, this is life. And I promise you, this is death. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me because I didn't do it, because sin deceived me. Proved to be death for me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. This is Satan language. This is, this is diabolical, the diabolical scheme. So, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So, we're not freed from the law because it was bad. We're freed from the law... Did that which is good then bring death to me? What's the, what's the deal here? And Paul says, well, kind of. That's sort of the point, but that's not, that's not quite it. By no means. It didn't bring death to you. It was sin, right? Sin is the bringer of death. The law doesn't bring death. The law says, if you do this, you will die. And sin does that, therefore death. The law just describes the situation. Okay? So, no, it's not the law that brings death. It's sin. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, which is the law. Sin working, this is how insidious sin is. Okay? This is how insidious the power of sin is. And then, all right, we'll just keep going. So this is what the law was for. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, look at this power that has wormed its way into the world and has infected all people, has deceived people, right? All have sinned. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin got, sin wormed its way into the human race and man, it spread like a wildfire. So the law came to say, no, that is sin. That is not what mankind was created for. And we need to be 100% clear that this is not what God wants. That sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become beyond measure. So the law was given to shine a bright light on the filth of mankind. And to say, this is sinful beyond measure. To, To really show that This is hopeless. Mankind is hopeless. Right? If you you remember the story, God looked down. This is in in the time before the flood. He looked down and he went, oh my gosh. The intention of mankind's heart is always evil in every heart. Basically, what did he say? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. At that point, he said, I have to destroy everything. Then he chose Noah. But then God did something very interesting. And I think it, it clarifies what the law came to do. He said, no, I'm not going to send a flood to destroy all mankind again. That's not how I'm going to deal with sin. All right? And from that point on, he was putting up with sin. He was winking at sin. 
He chose Abraham and he said, all right, you will be my people. Okay, so here's... In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. I need to show exactly how bad humanity has gotten. They need to see that. That it's sin and that there's nothing they can do about it. All right? Okay, now stick with me. So the law was given because of sin, but it was never the ultimate means by which mankind could be restored to God. That wasn't its purpose. It was not given to... Mankind was past that point already by the time the law was given. Do you understand that? Mankind was already past that point. Okay? It's not like, well, let's try the law. No, they failed. You know, let's try Christ now. No, no, no. The law prepared the way for Christ. Okay? And then that's that's what this is talking about. So let's look at Galatians 3. It says some of the same things in a little different way, and they they come into a little more clarity, okay? Why then the law, 319, Galatians? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That's ultimately talking about Christ. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. This is you know, the Jewish tradition thought that, you know, that the law at Sinai was given by angels, right? That's why in Hebrews, I think it says, or somewhere he says, you who believe that the law was given by angels, but you disobey it. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So it, 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 it itself could never give life. Verse 22, Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The whole point of the law was that you guys need to see how far off you are. And look, I'll tell you exactly how to do it. Good luck. Right? I'll tell you exactly how to do it. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian. That's like a babysitter. Until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer a guardian. Okay? So sin, I mean, uh, the law was never intended to be the way God was going to justify people and bring them back into the kind of relationship and the kind of humanity that would be restored. No, that was never going to happen until Christ came. But the law was put in place, and it really, it says it imprisoned everything under sin. All right? So think of a babysitter, right? Imagine the difference between a babysitter and your actual parents. Right, a babysitter is there for a limited time, right, for this evening, or maybe for this weekend, or maybe a whole week, maybe a whole summer. You're off at some, you know, 
boarding school or, or whatever. Doesn't matter. The babysitter or guardian or instructor is with you for a limited time. It's not, it's going to end. And they also have a very limited set of instructions for you, right? But they lack almost everything else that a parent brings to that relationship. What do they have? They have authority and they have a basic set of instructions. But it's a babysitter, right? They're not your parents. The presence of a father in the life of a child is light years away from a babysitter with a limited set of instructions, right? I mean, just think, you have to think of that difference. That's what the law to the people of God is, to the actual presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all of these, in both of these sections, where he's talking about the law being the guardian or the law uh, increasing sin, he ends up talking about, but now in Christ, we're sons. Okay, so we had kind of this taskmaster but that was, never the, that was never the goal. The goal was always sons, to be sons. I mean that the heir, this is chapter 4 of Galatians, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though the, he is the owner of everything, but he is the under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. A babysitter will keep you from killing yourself (laughs) and lighting the house on fire. A babysitter will not bring you into the fullness of maturity that your father can. A babysitter will not make decisions for your life. A babysitter will not bring you into the fullness of who you were meant to be. So here's the other thing. Why did God choose a people in the first place? This is what Israel never really understood. This is what was so radical about the, the, the message of Messiah, particularly the message of a crucified Messiah. God chose a people, and then he gave them the law so that he would have a, a way to draw, right? Because the law, or where, 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 where there is no law, sin's not counted. Right? But we have to deal with the sins of humanity. I will give a people a law so that they are accountable for sin. And so they do deserve death. A law that says, if you don't do this, you will die. I'm going to give that to a people. So that, for the sake of the world, I can condemn sin somewhere. Right? So the law was given to draw sin, the sins of Adam, to draw the sins of Adam, the guilt of those sins, into one place. Okay? Does that make sense? Imprisoned everything under sin so that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. That's in the people of God. 
That's why he says in the beginning, he says, listen, you Jews, listen to what the scripture says about y'all. There's none righteous, no, not one. They all deserve wrath, all this stuff. Yeah, that's on you. Now, where are we going? There is no condemnation. God condemned sin in the flesh. So the law was given so that the penalty of sin would all be drawn into one place. All right? It also somehow awakened the power of sin, just like Satan. We talked about that. By the way, when the law was actually given, right? When was it given? It was the first time the law was given. Anybody? Yeah, at Sinai, right? Exodus 19 um, is the giving of the, that's really when Torah itself. Now, God had said, you know, do this, and he had told Abraham certain things. But Torah was what came down on tablets on Sinai. What was going on during that? You remember? Exodus 32. This is the Genesis 3 moment of the delivered people of God. It's a golden calf, right? He's up there getting the law, and the people are worshiping a golden calf. This is a simultaneous thing. So he says, just like Satan popped his head up, you what? You should surely die? Okay. Let's see about that. He says, Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. Um, This is the state of Israel under the law, right? They're still, they deserve death, they've sinned. At the moment of the giving the law, they're sinful. They're deserving of death. The law didn't do anything about that. Their hearts were wicked. They were stiff-necked, he says. Moses said to Aaron, so I won't read the whole story, but the, the fallout of this is this. What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. We've got the law, but wow, there's something much more fundamental that needs that needs to happen here. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them.
We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. Now, he says, I am of the flesh. In verse 9 of chapter 8, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh. <laughs> okay, so clearly the I is, is a rhetorical device. Okay, I, he's speaking rhetorically, he's speaking figuratively. I, meaning Israel under the law, right? Because we're talking about, what about the law? What, what, is, the, what is the weird dynamic here of the law and the, the role that it plays in the people of God and its interaction with sin? So then he, he explains the activity of sin. He explains the status of the law. And now he explains the eye at the center of all of that confusion. Okay? There's the law. It's here. There's sin. It's power here. Now, where does that leave me? Where does that leave one under that, in that, in that position? Someone who knows the law, but someone who's still under the power of sin, i.e. the Jews. All right? He's like, so let's zoom in. Let's take a first-person point of view. In Israel, pre-Christ. Israel without Christ. We know that the law is, but I'm of the, of the flesh, sold under sin. I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that is good. Why do I hate the things that I do? Because I know what it says is good. I know it says don't commit adultery, but I lust. I don't like that because I know that the law says if you do this, you will live. But why can't I? (laughs) Something's wrong. Now, if I do not, I do not want. I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, which is the same as the language he used. Nevertheless, the life I live, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Remember that? So he says, if it's not Christ, you're serving sin. You're a slave of sin. And you're doing that because the power of sin has not been broken in your life. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of Israel is under this curse. They're in exile. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Sin has wormed its way into my will and is is manipulating me like a puppet. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will save me? Deliver, this is Exodus, this is Moses. Who will deliver me out of this predicament? This weird confluence of the law, but sin. How am I going to... How is anyone supposed to live under this? Who's going to deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. (laughs) So then I, as a member of Israel in the flesh under the law, 
With my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Why is that? Because I have not been crucified. My flesh has not been crucified. Okay? Now, there's a lot of places in the Old Testament we could go, but this is a good place, as good a place as any. Jeremiah 17. This is a word to the people of God facing exile. This is a word to the people of God who have the law and who may at various points acknowledge that it's good, but just simply don't do it. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. You can't erase it. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their asherim beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country, there's idolatry. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil, while the high places for sin throughout your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land you do not know. Serve the power of sin outside the promised land. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. This is the wrath of God that's revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of mankind who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. I'm in the flesh. With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. I'm in a captive land, serving people that are foreign. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water, sends out its roots by the stream. This is like Psalm 1. He does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain, and is not anxious in the year of drought. It does not cease to bear fruit. And verse 9 is really Romans 7 in a nutshell. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's written by a prophet to Israel under the law. Your heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Paul's saying, I don't understand the things that I do. I know the law. I know that it's good. But I can't do it. I can't live up to it. Chapter 8. So therefore, guess what, guys? There's no condemnation. The condemnation that Israel deserved, you don't have to, you're not under that condemnation. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in the Messiah Jesus from the law of sin and death. You're not serving that foreign enemy in a foreign land anymore. You have been brought back into the kingdom, into into the kind of relationship that God always intended to have with mankind by the Spirit as his Son. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law couldn't do it. The law was never going to do it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 
The law was given. It was good. It showed the will of God. It declared glorious things. It promised life. Still promises life. But what it was doing was drawing sin, magnifying sin, bringing, heaping sin onto the people of God. But what all of that was leading to was the man of God, the Messiah, the representative king of the people, the head of the people. All of that sin was going to be heaped on him, and he was killed. All of the condemnation that sin deserved in the whole human race was, was condemned. Jesus, he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. So, all of that condemnation, all of the judgment, all of the wrath that the people of God were under because they had the law, it was all coming to a head, and, and that head was Jesus. He is the representative Israelite. Israelite is the representative uh, people group of all people groups. Right? So do you see how God, in choosing Abraham, wasn't just giving himself a smaller group of people to have to deal with. He was saying, let's gather all sin together. Let's gather all the... He was having... He was outsmarting sin. Do you see that? He was outmaneuvering sin. Sin thought, oh, there's a law. We know how to do this. They're never going to be able to keep it. But this really strange purpose of the law, Satan and Israel never really got. That it was precisely to imprison a people under sin that God sent the law. It was precisely to condemn sin in the flesh that he gave the law. But what people didn't understand is that the Messiah was going to be the place where he condemned sin in the flesh. This is Isaiah 53. He bore the transgressions of many. By his stripes we are healed. He condemned sin in the flesh. So now if you're in him, (laughs) there's no more condemnation. All the condemnation was heaped. It was all all given. Sin has been condemned. So that's why we, we die from it. We're able to be forgiven and not condemned. Because he has condemned sin in the flesh. Isn't that awesome? So Romans 7 isn't a description of our struggle with sin. It's a description of how the law really does imprison everything under sin. And the best we can do under the law is wanting to do it, but not being able to. And it's to show exactly why Jesus had to come. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. He did it. The law itself, it was good. The law was spiritual. But it was really just there as a a babysitter so that God could come and send his own son. That's why the Galatians passage is so powerful. He's at the right time. When sin had come to its fullness, he sent Messiah, born of a woman, to take on all the sins of mankind in general, born under the law to take on all the sins of Israel specifically, right? 
I think that's amazing. To see how the purpose, to see how he outmaneuvered the power of sin by basically saying, you know, I love in uh, one of my favorite uh, series of movies and uh, action, but it's Jurassic Park. But there's always that moment where like the the T Rex appears and it's going for this one person, but another person who you know loves that person to they make a, make a bunch of noise and distract the T-Rex to go over there. That's what God was doing with Israel, right? Sin was wreaking havoc on all flesh. And he said, no, 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 over here, over here, in in this people. Okay, now over here, over over here. And eventually he got to my own son. Over here, do, do your worst here. And he died and God said, he can rape, he can come back to life because he never actually did any sin. But he submitted to the, the power of sin, the death, right? Death is the power of sin. He submitted to death even though he hadn't sinned. And so the power of death was undone. Because death is deserved by everybody that sins. What about someone who doesn't sin? So do you see, do you see how this is like, it's simple, but it's also like deeply profound. And it totally undoes your view of the law and, and, and everything like that. The law was good, but it served a very strange purpose, right? And it was basically to lure and, 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 and culminate and, and draw sin into one place and there condemn it all. Does that make sense? I think this is hinted at. This is foreshadowed in the life of Abraham with the sacrifice of Isaac. Not in a very, not in a cut and dry allegorical way. But what happened? Hey, this was the child of the promise. Kill him. Jesus was the child of the promise. He was the offspring. He was the heir of David. Kill him. Why? Because in doing that, he's providing a substitute. A, he, he, is, he is atoning for the sins of the whole world. This is why the death of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, was such a powerful thing. When Jesus was killed, Satan was conquered. The power of sin was undone. We, we sing that, but that's, that's how it was undone, because sin was all drawn together into one place, and did the sinless man kill the sinless man? What are you going to do now? There's resurrection power. <laughs> There's no more power, Right? Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So then it's all about the Spirit, right? We walk by the Spirit. If we're in Christ, we have the Spirit of Christ. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh. You're not in the flesh. In the way that that I, that rhetorical I, he says, I am in the flesh. It says, you're not in the flesh because you're in Christ. You're in the Spirit if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, because of God's covenant faithfulness. Do you see how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God? How faithful he's been to his people 
even when they didn't understand what he was doing (laughs) and how just he's been. He hasn't just winked at sin. He has focused sin, laser-focused it into one place and condemned it. He's righteous. He can't let sin go unpunished, but he didn't. All right, so he couldn't just forgive his people. That would have been unjust. But he said, he promised to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. They were never going to live up to that calling. What's God going to do? How is he going to, how is he going to punish sin and bless the whole world through Israel? Jesus. He did both of those things. He condemned all sin in Jesus. And then he put all of humanity in Jesus. And it's the new humanity. Right? So this is, this is mind-blowing stuff. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Christ has come. We're in a new kingdom. And it's by the Spirit. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live... According to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This This was always the purpose. Ephesians 1 says he chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be adopted as sons. God always knew where he was going. The law wasn't just one attempt. Uh, Scrap it and start over. Paul says that so many times. The law was not... Um, a failed project. None of God, none of the stages of God's covenants were failed projects. They were all moving to a point. Every step, every stage of the covenant, the Abraham part, or the Noah part, the Abraham part, the Moses part, the law part, Sinai, the David part, the royal part, it was all moving us to a place where now Jesus could embody all of that. And he could be the kind of person that God had always... And he, in, in doing that, he redeemed all of mankind. So now we are all sons. The spirit of adoption is sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The babysitter has been relieved of duty. Dad's home. <laughs> Isn't that an awesome feeling? Even if, even if you know you've, did, you've done things wrong, it's still a, a better feeling for dad to be in control than for the babysitter, isn't it? Because the babysitter, they have no nuance. They just have to do what the parents said, according to the, this, this code. They have no context. They have no way to know your heart. But now dad's here. And even though, even if I've done something wrong, I know that dad wants to deal with me in a way that gets at my heart. Isn't that awesome? The law is gone. But it doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want. It, mean that it means that now dad's here and he can help us mature into the men and women that we were, we were born to be. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And then it all comes full circle. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. He did it. He blessed the world through the offspring of Abraham. And now we are heirs of the promise. 
And then the last part of eight, you know, what can you say about it? It, it really just speaks for itself. It's, I think you, we need to memorize it. Provided, it says, provided we suffer with him. So there's an acknowledgement that, yes, we still live in a space where the power of sin's broken, the power of death has been undone, but we still reside in mortal bodies until we perish or until Jesus comes back. Now, we know what's going to happen, right? And this, a lot of this is about assurance. We know that if we've been put in Christ, man, he is going to take care of everything that we need. On the last day, there's no condemnation. We don't have any fear, any of that. If we are in Christ, we have nothing to fear. We don't even have to fear anything that happens to our mortal bodies. Because the sufferings of this present time, and we just live in a blip. That hard time you're going through, all the parents who have sick children right now, starting to get under it a little bit. It's just such a small blip. (laughs) Maybe you've had more long-term struggles. Maybe you had just long bouts of just feeling terrible, being under, uh, under stress or under depression or... Um, just struggling with doubt or or whatever else. The present physical ailments, uh, mental ailments, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's revealed to us. We can't go through all this. It says we eagerly, we groan inwardly, right? We're in this phase of we are being, it's like we're being birthed and we groan inwardly. We eagerly await for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And then it concludes with this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now think of that in terms of the righteousness of God. The faithfulness of God. He created man, and man rebelled from him. And he said, this is going to take a long time. It's going to cost me everything. But I am going to get him back into the garden. And he did it. If God is for us, God was for mankind. He's always been for me. He's never given up. He's never abandoned his project. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously, and this gets back to the chapter five, the grace in which we stand. We stand, we live in this present age under grace. And so no matter what comes, God is for us. Those who he justified, he will glorify. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Not the law anymore. Not Satan anymore. All that's been dealt with. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. God condemns sin in the flesh. He's the one that dealt with all of that stuff. All the failure, all the perennial failure of mankind. There's no more condemnation if you're in Christ. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, 
who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation. And just think, think about these things. Tribulation. That's the pressure of life. That's the grind of daily living. That's what tribulation is. It's a squeezing. It's pressure. It's literally pressure. The tribulation, is that going to separate? Does God love you less? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, that would include sin, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. As long as we're in this world, God's created world, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just as much as nothing was able to deter God from being faithful to what he set out to do. Right? And Jesus, for us, should represent not just 30 years or 33 years of faithfulness as a man. Jesus, for us, should represent from the beginning of time. From, and God said, let there be light. Let us create man in our image. From that moment on, that's how long God's been faithful. So he says, the love of God in Christ, he has shown it. Jesus represents for us. As Paul says, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. So what are you going to say about God? (laughs) What are you going to say about the love of God? How could you ever call it into question? You You cannot look at scripture. You cannot look at what Jesus represents as the climax of the the summation of all God's purposes, you can't look at him and say, "Eh, I'm on the fence (laughs) of whether he loves me. (laughs) There's no question. And nothing can separate us from that. Um, So we run to Jesus. And we, we, we cling to him. We, re- we realize that we have been baptized into him. And he is our, he is our boast. Right? We, don't, we don't have any boast. Other than we're in Christ. And what that means is we have everything to boast about. We are mankind as God intended it to be. Because we're in Christ. So there's not really an application. Like Paul says, what can we say to these things? They just have to kind of wash over you. What can you say to these things? <laughs> not really anything. Maybe thank you. <laughs> thank you, God. <laughs> what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? How in the world did you not just like abandoned this little dirt ball called earth a long time ago. What, what, what is man that you are mindful of? Who are we? 
But he started it and he stuck with it. And he did this crazy thing called Israel. This, this crazy calling, this set apart people of God that somehow their failure was exactly what God intended. <laughs> That's what he gets into in 9, 10, and 11. So that makes much more sense now. Once we get to 9, 10, and 11, this is, this is really, for the Jews that Paul's talking to, this shows them, whoa. Right, where we're headed, that's where we're headed. Chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's not the cessation of the law. It's the telos of the law. Christ is where all the, all the, um, what does he say? Christ is where all the patriarchs, all the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, Christ is where all of that was going. God loves you all. Because he knows, you know, you were the, you were the one he called up on the front of the class to make an example of. <laughs> so he has a special place in his heart for you. All right. What a great letter. Man. Um, so there we go. Uh, the function of the law within the purposes of God. That's what I want to talk about tonight. What's the function of the law and the purposes of God in light of Christ? Um, so anybody have any questions? Does that make sense? What the law did? It was a babysitter, magnified law, magnified sin, drew it together into one place, eventually into the flesh of Jesus, the body of Jesus, which God killed and condemned sin in the flesh. That's awesome. That's pretty amazing. All right, any, uh, any comments or questions? I know that's long, but it was going to be long tonight. Thanks for sticking with it. Your um, personification... The personification of sin that you underscored in that section really reminded me of God's initial characterization of the temptation of Cain. Yeah. uh, Sin is like a a lion that was crouching. It's crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. Yeah. Yeah. And then I really like the way that you talked, that you split that metaphor there into two different people. It brought me to Corinthians where, you know, Paul says in Christ we are a new creation. Yeah. And then he was kind of. I don't think I explicitly thought of it that way, but that just really makes a lot of sense and flows really well into eight. It seems really consistent. So that made that easier to think about. Um, and then the idea of the law and uh, the law um, that brings death and the law of the spirit that brings life just reminded me of the ministry of John the Baptist. Like he, yeah. I was thinking of him as like the culmination of the law. Yeah. Of sin and death. And I, I was just thinking that what did he do when he saw Jesus? I mean, he healed it. He had to become less and Christ had become more. And, and there was this beautiful intersection of the old law and the new law, the spirit of life, yeah. when uh, Christ uh, is baptized by him. And the yeah. God, the spirit descends. So that's, that's kind, of where, um, kind of where your sermon took, took my thoughts in Scripture. That's awesome because that's right there. In the, we're, we're going into Mark after Romans. That's right there at the beginning of Mark. Yeah, that'll be really awesome to read. Mark announces the coming of Jesus in terms of, you know, John being the end of the Old Covenant. Yeah. That's great.
there was something you said that reminded me of something that I wanted to say. What did you say right before that last one? Oh, man. There was the Cain thing. I was the Cain thing, and then I pointed to 2 Corinthians 5, where um, Paul says, um, in Christ you are a new creation, and the old is gone. That was the second thing, but I don't think that's what you're saying. Uh, no, because, yeah, so the, the double... Yeah. There's two people it's here. Yeah. yeah. That's that really makes a lot of sense in this whole passage because one of the things that one of the context helps, I think, uh in Romans six through eight, or really five through eight, is to understand that Paul is he's just setting contrasts, right? There's this and this. There's two kinds of, there's Adam and Christ. Mm-hmm. There's and he's he's contrasting a bunch of things. And so there's there's uh and he's, he's uh, taking the point of view of that person who's under that old covenant, right? And law is, law works in a particular way in the realm of sin and death. And it doesn't work in the way that we would think. But it doesn't mean that the law is any less good or spiritual. Yeah. So you have to read seven, especially that I section, um, in light of the rest of what he's doing. And it makes a bunch more sense. Because like, how is he talking about the futility of a Christian walk right before he talks about being more than conquerors in this present age? <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, so he's, he's, assuming, he's assuming a character, uh, which is Israel under the law. All right, amen. Hopefully you hung in there. You can always go back and listen if you like spaced out at one point. That's that's always good. Amen. All right. Well, Lord, I pray that you would um, just send us out with uh, with joy and assurance that uh, that the sufferings of this present age, whatever challenges lie in front of us, uh, aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. And uh, Lord, that you just fill us with a deep awareness and a gratitude of your love for us uh, and and a a boldness in your love for us uh, lord that in our in our own life in our pursuit of holiness we'd be bold that we would know who we are that we would know uh, whom we serve with our members um and lord in our in our uh, efforts to love one another you would make us bold you would fill us with that love of christ that we would love one another like that um, that we would be so uh, turned outward by your love for us uh, that it would overflow and it would truly bear fruit in our lives, God. And as we, uh, as we look ahead toward next week, Lord, we do want to pray for Mason and Caroline and um, for this week uh, specifically in their life, that you would fill them with uh, the love of Christ um, and that they would just rejoice and drink it in deeply. Uh, the way that you love each of them. And that that would be a love that going into their marriage, Lord, that that would be a love that even transcends the love they have for one another. Um, That they would love you and be loved by you in a way that that totally overshadows um, the love that they have for one another. But I also pray that you would help them to love one another uh, in that way and that it would overflow. from you uh, through each of them into, uh, into each other's lives. We thank you for that. 
Uh, go with us, Lord. Again, I ask for healing for anyone who's still ill, that, that you would help us to, uh, to be more than conquerors in illness as well and uh, to triumph over it in faith. And uh, we thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.